0: This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 214, The Exciting Future. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. This is the first of four episodes focusing on the future, good, bad, scary, and exciting. I'm excited about it, so I guess the exciting future is the place to start. This week we will discuss the church that excited Jesus and why it might not excite you or me, the book that got me started on this line of thought in the first place, the power of the universe in our failed efforts to find a plug that fits, and the sense of stability I get from seeing old forms in new packages. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13 reads, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'll be featuring the churches of Asia in this space for the next four weeks. We got a bit of a head start back in episode 212 when we talked about Thyatira in the context of tolerance. You're no doubt aware the book of Revelation directly addresses seven churches in a part of the Roman Empire that was becoming less and less conducive to the Christian life. Some Christians, like Jezebel and Thyatira, had decided the best way to get along was to go along, embrace parts of the sinful world, and somehow harmonize that with the walk of faith. Go back and check out what I had to say on that topic if you have not done so already. It was different in Philadelphia, though. The saints there had decided to hold the line. They would stand with Jesus even if it cost them dearly. As a result, Jesus promised to mitigate their circumstances somewhat. I hasten to point out here that is by no means a guarantee that faithful Christians will prosper in this life. Revelation teaches us quite the contrary, in fact. But for whatever reason, in the wisdom of God, they would be spared the hour of testing that was coming to the world, at least to a certain extent. Instead of the hour of testing, they would be given something quite different. An open door. I can't speak for you, but if Jesus offered me an open door in the context of suffering and persecution, I would be quick to assume that door would lead to a better place, a happier place, at the very least a different place. But that doesn't seem to be Jesus' point. He urges them to hold fast what you have. Doesn't seem they were going anywhere, not for the time being at least. I think it's far more likely that the open door here speaks more of what would be coming in than what would be going out. Open doors are opportunities. And it seems opportunities were in store for the Christians in Philadelphia. Opportunities, strange as it may seem, for the cause of Christ to actually advance instead of retreating. I'll confess to a bit of cynicism when it comes to the impact for good the church is having on the world at large. I see no evidence that Satan's hold on the world is any less strong today than it has been at any other time in my life. But I try very hard to remain optimistic with regard to specific circumstances. The world has always been a hostile place for the work of God in the hearts of men and women. And the world has always seen examples of souls coming to salvation anyway. And if the power of Satan has shown itself to be consistent through the centuries, the power of the gospel to save has been every bit as consistent. Jude 3 tells us it was given once for all to the saints. That's once for all people, once for all time, including our time. It's entirely possible that the hardships of this life, which are tools in the hands of the devil intended to break down our faith, will have exactly the opposite effect for some people in your orbit. Like a handful of jello, extra pressure only results in souls slipping through his fingers. You've seen it happen, I'll wager. I have too. These are open doors, circumstances in which the rampant and, in some quarters at least, growing influence of evil will cause souls to look for a way out, an open door to a better place. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you were the one standing in the doorway, entreating them to come in? Jesus has always appealed to the downtrodden, the weary and heavy laden of Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He continues to appeal to them today. And remember, he is the one who opens doors that no one can shut. He is opening doors in your world, even as you hear these words, creating opportunities for lost souls to find what you have right now. Take advantage of the opportunity. Show the blessings Jesus has provided for you. Offer them through Jesus to those who are on the outside. Then usher them through the door and welcome them home. This is what I've been reading. What do you get when a behavioral entomologist named Smith marries a cartoonist and writer named Wiener? You get Kelly and Zach Wiener-Smith, the co-authors of a fascinating book entitled Soonish, Soonish has made as big an impact on me as any book I've read this year. It's clever, it's funny, it's thought provoking, and perhaps most importantly of all, it doesn't take itself too seriously. I will likely reference several futuristic concepts over the next four weeks, and many of them will have been brought to my attention by Mr. and Mrs. Wiener Smith. I'm sorry, I just love saying that name, Wiener Smith. Ten areas of scientific research are discussed in the book, all of which are going to be pursued in the coming years and decades some of which may actually be realized in my lifetime. For example, space travel is seriously hindered by financial considerations. It takes roughly $10,000 to send one pound of cargo, machinery, and or crew into space. And that's in 2017 dollars. If we could build a cable line to reach a space station, or even an elevator, and yes, those are real possibilities, we could see costs plummet. Before long, we could be building rockets in space, which would decrease costs even more. Those rockets could be used to mine asteroids, which in turn could produce minerals for colonies on Mars, and on and on the imagination goes. You prefer to stay earthbound? What would you think of houses that built themselves? If you think a bed that turns into a bookcase is pretty clever, just wait until programmable matter kicks into gear. Or how about replacing virtual reality with augmented reality, in which you could overlay a better, more interesting reality on top of the actual reality? Your tiny one-bedroom apartment could become a Manhattan penthouse. Or the cricket burger you're being forced to eat could taste like Kobe beef. I could go on and on. In 50 years, we might be bioprinting replacement organs for ourselves or stimulating our brains to increase intelligence or using DNA as a data storage device. Or we might not. And that's the problem with predicting the future. The river of time does not always flow in predictable directions. Take flying cars, for instance. For as long as there has been science fiction, we've been promised flying cars. In fact, way back in 1986, we saw Doc Brown arrive from the future to meet his old friend Marty McFly to take him back to the future, a time in which flying cars were the norm instead of the dream. And when did they arrive? October 21st, 2015. 2015. And here we are more than seven years beyond that and no flying cars. What happened? Turns out, People don't want them. Too much trouble. Too tough for ordinary people to drive. I mean, look how awful people are driving in just two dimensions. You want to have them drive in three? We have a general idea of what technology can do and what we would like future technologies to do. But planning, for instance, to be independent of fossil fuels in 20 years or colonizing Mars in 100 years is just silly. Our crystal balls barely work well enough to determine whether it will rain on Saturday. I find it fascinating to speculate about future events and circumstances. I find it terrifying as well, but we'll have to wait a week or two for that. But whether you are excited or nervous about the future, you need to find a way to embrace the uncertainty. And for a Christian, that should be the best part about future planning. Some things will get better within our lifetimes. Some things will get worse. In the end, though, we trust in the God who truly does know the future. And living in the plan of God, although not the same as knowing the future, is just as good. As Psalm 90 verse 2 reminds us, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And reaching the end of the journey, seeing our Savior even as he is, 1 John 3, 2. Finally hearing the inexpressible words Paul wrote of in Second Corinthians twelve four, That's a future to get truly excited about. This is what I've been hearing. Nuclear fusion is the power that runs our entire solar system. Our sun generates extremely high temperatures along with extremely high gravitational pressure. The hydrogen atoms that compose the sun ordinarily repel one another. However, under these remarkable conditions, they are forced together anyway. Eventually, two hydrogen atoms combine to become a single helium atom. When they do, they release an enormous amount of energy, and I do mean enormous, far more than you get from the nuclear fission reactions we see today in nuclear reactors. How much more? Glad you asked. One book, and yes, it's cited by the Wintersmiths and Soonish, claims that a typical laptop lithium battery and enough isotopic hydrogen to fill a bathtub could generate 200,000 kilowatts of fusion energy. That's as much as 40 tons of coal. And the kicker is fusion produces no negative byproducts at all. No clouds of smoke, no cancerous tumors, no glow-in-the-dark buildings, just near infinite amounts of power for virtually no cost at all. Sounds pretty good, right? So why don't we all have fusion-powered cities and cars and toaster ovens? Well, that takes us back to the sun. Fusion works because of the unique circumstances in the heart of a living star. Getting that to work in a laboratory, let alone a power plant, is complicated. Still, it has inspired researchers for decades. I can remember being at Texas A&M University in 1989 when one of our science professors claimed to have cracked the code. Well, not so much as it turns out. So-called cold fusion, nuclear fusion reactions at relatively normal conditions, remains elusive even to this day. It's not difficult to imagine a best-case scenario in a fusion-powered world. Virtually no pollution. No more talk about man-made climate change. No whining about gas prices. In fact, lower prices for pretty much everything. But allow me to let a little fusion-generated helium out of the balloon by pointing out a worst-case scenario. What would happen if the world treated fusion energy the same way they treated atomic fission energy back during the days of the Cold War? Or the way they treated dynamite, for that matter, or gunpowder? We get nervous thinking about the North Koreans somehow cobbling together enough plutonium to blow up Manhattan. Just imagine what they could do with a nuclear fusion reactor they bought for $500 off of Amazon. It's silly to assume that we can improve life here to such a degree that evil people will quit being evil. One study after another over the last 200 years has proven this. Yes, some people may be driven to horrible behavior because of their horrible circumstances. But some do bad things just because they can Education hasn't changed that, social programs haven't changed that, improved nutrition hasn't changed that, and infinite free energy, if we were ever to achieve it, won't change that either. As long as we persist in seeing the world as imperfect because of human failure, we will continue to utilize human solutions to improve it. And make no mistake, I have no problem in trying to improve conditions. But the world is imperfect at its core because of sin. No, righteousness won't cure cancer or heat your home. But imagine a world where everyone modeled themselves after Jesus. People would be sick, certainly, but they would be cared for and loved. Injustice would cease. Kindness would reign. That's the appeal of the picture John paints for us in Revelation twenty-two fifteen. 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. The world is ugly because those people are inside. So if they have to be in the world, do your best to keep them out of your world. And hasten the day when new heavens and a new earth are given to us, a place where righteousness and only righteousness dwells. This is what I've been playing. We have a scoreboard mounted on the wall by the Hammonds family game table. Tracy, Kylie, and I are keeping track of who wins the most games in 2023. Traditionally, my daughter Taylor, who is married now and no longer games with us regularly, battled it out with Tracy for the unofficial title of Best Gamer in the Family. I was a distant third, and Kylie came in behind me. Last year was the first year we actually kept track, and I actually edged out Tracy for the title, yay me. Kylie was behind, but not too far behind. She was catching up. This year, Kylie has been ahead from the very start. I have some theories about that. Because Kylie was away at college for four years, she played a lot fewer games than the rest of us. That's probably a factor. Perhaps the biggest factor, though, is Space Park, a game, perhaps not coincidentally, that we bought because Kylie wanted it. The artwork reminded her of Space Mountain at Walt Disney World. Hey, whatever gets her to the table. It's simple, it's quick, it's about $20, so we bought it. And we've played it a lot in 2023, perhaps more than any other game. Kylie has yet to lose a game of Space Park to her mother or me. I think that's rude, personally, but we'll cover Rebellion and Ingratitude in another episode. That's a joke, Kylie. I love you. In Space Park, you travel to distant worlds, collecting precious space jewels, fulfilling orders, and then exchanging completed orders for victory points. The first one to earn 20 points is the winner. It's a bit more complicated than that, but not much more. Or maybe it is more complicated than that, and that's why I've never won a game of Space Park. In any event, I find it humorous that we are immersed in this futuristic world with incredibly advanced technology, and in the end, we are spending our days picking up bits of business from one place and taking it to another place, so we can trade them for other bits of business to take to yet another place. Gamers call it pick-up-and-deliver, and it's one of the most basic board gaming mechanisms there is. We could just as easily be gem merchants in ancient Istanbul. Or long haul truckers delivering cargo across the American heartland. Or Chinese vegetable farmers trying to please their hungry customers. And in fact, that is exactly who we are in three of our other games, none of which I win very often. Come to think of it, maybe I'm just not very good at pick up and deliver games. Anyway, I'm reminded again the more things change, the more they stay the same. We can get so caught up in the daily headlines, the latest fads, the coolest gizmo at Best Buy, that we ignore the Basic consistency of humanity. We eat, we sleep, we work, we raise our children. The speed, quality, and comfort of our trip through life on planet Earth, or wherever we wind up, may change considerably on the surface, but the essential nature of it has always been the same. We are strangers and pilgrims on the Earth, choosing every day whether to spend our lives in service to our Creator or in service to ourselves. I'll probably come back to this point more than once this month, but let me hit it hard here at least once. Embrace the future, dread the future, predict the future, resist the future, do as you like. But whatever you do, don't forget about living today. The choices you make today, either for God's purposes or against them, will have a direct impact on how future events impact you. Live for Jesus today and plan to live for Jesus tomorrow. Focus on the future as much as you want. Just make sure you focus on your heavenly future more. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous. Fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammond's Citizen of Heaven signing off.